Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Hello and welcome to NewsHour. It's coming to you live from the BBC World Service in London. I'm Tim Franks. One of our correspondents in Brazil said that the surprise today, the shock felt by many Brazilians, was not that uh, President Jair Bolsonaro had announced that he tested positive for the coronavirus, but that it had taken so long for the news to come, given that he's been such a sceptic about taking precautions. More than 65,000 Brazilians have died having tested positive for COVID-19 so far. There have been more than 1.6 million confirmed cases in country. Mr Bolsonaro has previously described the virus as the sniffles. He's been very publicly reluctant to wear a face mask. Indeed, over the weekend, his foreign minister posted on social media a photo showing the president embracing the US ambassador at a 4th of July party surrounded by others with none of the men wearing masks. So perhaps for some, not a surprise today, but nonetheless a big story in the country that lies only second to the United States in the virus league table. Mr Bolsonaro made the announcement speaking to reporters and for most of the time wearing a face mask. It was an almost throwaway remark, though, after first accusing governors and mayors in Brazil of introducing restrictions that he says are too harsh. They brought a certain level of panic to society regarding the virus. Everybody knew that sooner or later it would affect a considerable part of the population. I, for example, if I hadn't taken the test, I wouldn't know the result. And it turned out to be positive. It was positive. I'll give you a quick timeline. It started on Sunday and got worse during the day on Monday with tiredness and a little muscle pain and fever. My temperature reached 38 degrees. The presidential doctor said the symptoms suggested COVID-19. We went for a tomography at the Armed Forces Hospital. My lungs were clear. There was nothing opaque, so that was a good sign. But I continued to have symptoms, and the doctor decided to prescribe hydroxychloroquine, and I took the first dose yesterday. Mr Bolsonaro was uh, asked if he was surprised about testing positive. No, I thought that I had already caught it earlier because of my dynamic interaction with the population. I'm the President of the Republic. I'm at the forefront of the fight. I don't flee from my responsibility and I don't shy away from the population. I like being in their midst. So because of my intensive contact with the people in the past months, I thought I had contracted it but had not noticed it. Like the United States, the only country with a higher caseload and death toll, Brazil is intensely polarised in its politics. Let's hear first from a supporter of the hard-right president. Gilles Denise is a member of the state parliament in São Paulo. First, his reaction to the news that his president had tested positive. So the first reaction of me and also the population in Brazil, his supporters, is one of support. Uh, The president has been our leader throughout this COVID crisis. So the first reaction is one of total support for him and prayers for him. Do you think that the president took sufficient precautions against catching the disease? The president does take the necessary measures. You don't always get that impression when you listen to his critics and the big media who say that he isn't uh, taking 
enough care, that he's not wearing a mask. But I think he has this closer, more personal connection with the people. And I think that he is actually taking the necessary measures. You saw it very recently during the July 4th celebrations at the embassy of the United States. And I think overall, you just have to say that he does take the necessary measures. And the reality is that the big majority of people in Brazil at some point will catch the virus. So this is maybe just inevitable. Well, it's interesting that you raise that celebration at the uh, U.S. Embassy on the 4th of July. Um, the foreign minister posted a picture of Mr. Bolsonaro, uh, arm around the U.S. ambassador, then um, doing the thumbs up for the for the camera, uh, surrounded by other men. I mean, th- this was precisely what every single public health expert in the world says you should not do at the moment. You should be social distancing. So you could argue that the president was being irresponsible for his own sake, but also very irresponsible in terms of the health of the nation and the message he was giving out. Not at all. This event was a private event and the ambassador has now tested negative as well. So summing up, we don't know if somebody passed it to the president or the other way around. The president is a very charismatic person, so it comes very natural to him to be very close, not only to his ministers, but also to the population in general. So I don't think he's been irresponsible at all or that he sent a negative message. Quite the contrary. Brazilians value that close contact he has and that celebration of the independence of the United States was a private event and in a controlled environment. Listening to what you're saying, with, with the greatest respect, it sounds as if, rather like the president, you're in a little bit of denial about this. I mean, no one is suggesting that it is wrong for a politician in normal times to try and get close to people. But in what you're saying about President Bolsonaro and what you're saying about Maybe most people in Brazil will come down with the disease. You seem to be taking the approach of saying there's really nothing that we can do about tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people dying, because that is what this will mean if you just decide that there's really very little you can do or want to do. But the president is taking the necessary measures. Uh, For instance, he is now using a mask. Until a few months ago, not even the WHO had a clear message. It said a mask shouldn't be used all the time and in all circumstances. And as I said before, it's the president's character to be close to the people, to have close contact with them. So I think maybe some of this criticism is valid. And of course, there are people who defend lockdowns and uh, social distancing. But if you look at that event of July the 4th, it was a small event. Other people who were there didn't catch the virus. The president even went on that trip to the US earlier in the year and he didn't catch it then. So you can't draw a connection between the two. And the president, as I said, is doing what is necessary and he is doing a good job for the Brazilian people. Shielden is member of the State Parliament in São Paulo uh, with President Bolsonaro's Social Liberal Party. Oliver Stunkel is an Associate Professor of International Relations at the Getúlio Vargas Foundation in São Paulo. 
Does he think this news today will shake supporters of President Bolsonaro? In general, I would say no, because assuming that the president will recover, uh, he will use this to say, look, the pandemic was not as serious as everybody else is saying. It's worth uh, remembering that the president is blaming governors and mayors for the economic collapse, which is a result of the social distancing measures. He will say that this is not necessary. He was always in favor of keeping everything open. Uh, so he's trying to distance himself from the economic crisis that's coming in order to uh, have a chance at re-election two years from now. He knows that it's very difficult for presidents to get re-elected in the midst of an economic crisis. So basically, his strategy is to always minimize the pandemic. He, uh, he and many of his followers have been questioning whether there are actually as many deaths uh, as the media says. Uh, so a lot of his supporters actually believe that this is not as serious and again, assuming that the president will recover, he can both say, look, I'm taking chloroquine, which despite the lack of uh, scientific evidence, he and his supporters believe is the right way to treat this. So if he comes out of this and says, you know, I, I have recovered, I am proof that it's not serious, that chloroquine helps, uh, then this can be used to his benefit. Also, because many of his followers think that he's a type of superhuman messiah. He has been attacked on the campaign trail. Uh, he survived. So this could be sort of another chapter to consolidate this message that he, uh, this, this uh, narrative, that he is really uh, sort of a, a very special leader uh, who can, you know, uh, basically uh, protect himself from all kinds of threats. That's fascinating. So in other words, an, an awful lot turns. I mean, he himself has said that were I to contract the disease, even though I'm 65, I, I sort of I have the constitution of an athlete, and therefore I'm unlikely to be affected. So what you're saying is that in a sense, his political fortunes really turn on, you know, how, how he deals with the disease, and he'll be praying, I mean, obviously, he'll be praying that he doesn't have the sort of um, terrible effects that, for example, the British Prime Minister did where he, he wound up in intensive care. But you're saying that that could have a real impact in terms of his political fortunes. Yes. I mean, he needs to defend uh, the idea that, uh, you know, that the, the pandemic isn't the threat that everybody says, right? D uh, and despite the so numbers. I mean, so you, you're talking about the, the terrible contraction of the economy, which is an un unarguable. But you're, you're saying that there is, even though, you know, we're saying, the World Health Organization is saying, Johns Hopkins University is saying that whatever right. it is, 65,000 people have died. There, there are a, what, a sufficient number of people in Brazil who say that's simply not the case. Well, there is also, I mean, that's, of course, there's concern. But, uh, and I continuously and regularly speak to Bolsonaro supporters, and a number of them questions the numbers. They say, uh, you know, this may or may not be true. It's not really about saying they're all false, but they're sort of saying, well, I don't really believe in anything these days. They're also not really part of the debate of what they call sort of the, 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 the lying media, the fake news media. So this is a, a part of the population which is fairly protected sort of from, uh, from these news that are, you know, clearly visible in the world, that Brazil is one of the most affected countries. But this is clearly a core uh, of his supporters, which I think is unlikely to change its mind because of what's happening in the country. Um, so I, I think another issue, by the way, of how the president could use uh, this situation is that, of course, a lot of 
you know, people on social media have sort of said, you know, this, it, Bolsonaro deserves to get very sick. Or the, uh, and, and the president and his allies have already used this rhetoric and say, see, the actual culprit in this whole situation is the opposition, which is excessively authoritarian. Uh, it, it's proof that, you know, they're uh, wishing uh, my death or desiring my death. Uh, so there's ways around this, always remembering that the president has, to some extent, like President Trump, uh, it communicates directly to many of his supporters without sort of any intermediary. He uses social media uh, quite well and continuously questions the result. There have been cases of Bolsonaro supporters invading hospitals uh, where uh, 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 patients of COVID-19 are being treated because uh, they thought this was uh, set up and this wasn't actually uh, real. That was Oliver Stunkel, Associate Professor of International Relations at the Getulio Vargas Foundation in Sao Paulo. And the latest figures from the World Health Organization have just this minute pinged into my inbox. Uh, Brazil, 64,867 deaths, 1,600,000 uh, cases. The US, 2,877,000 cases and just shy of 130,000 deaths. This is News Hour. Coming up in the programme, we'll hear from members of the Cathedral Choir in the English city of Wells, devastated that they can no longer sing as they used to because of coronavirus restrictions. I think it provides an emotional release and to know that that's dangerous and that it could actually hurt people is just heartbreaking. We'll uh, hear more from Wells in uh, about 30 minutes. Our headlines in the BBC newsroom. President Trump's formally started the process of withdrawing the United States and the World Health Organization. And as we've been hearing, the Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has tested positive for COVID-19 after repeatedly dismissing the seriousness of the virus. You're with the BBC World Service and live from London, NewsHour, with me, Tim Franks. It was pretty clear from the title of Mary Trump's new book how she felt about her uncle, the president. Too much and never enough. How my family created the world's most dangerous man is the title. And you imagine the thesis of this tome, which is due to be released a week today. There's intense interest in it. It's already topping Amazon's best-selling list, and it's the first contribution to the collection of Trump-centred memoirs uh, of the uh, past few years that have come from within the family. As I say, it's not out until next Tuesday, but Shane Harris, intelligence and national security reporter for The Washington Post, has managed to get hold of an advanced copy. What are the headlines? Well, I think the headlines are here, uh, probably the most recent ones, are that uh, uh, members of the Trump family believe that his bid to be president was quixotic at best. His aunt, uh, his his sister, Mary Ann Trump, who until recently was a prominent judge in the United States, called her brother, quote, a clown and said, this will never happen, uh, Mary Trump writes in the book. Uh, they believe that his, uh, he had evinced racist tendencies. They thought that he was exploiting both uh, his role in the family business, as well as Mary Trump's father's memory, actually, for his political benefit. 
And what comes across here is, you know, a portrait in the eyes of Mary Trump of a, you know, pathological narcissist who seems to have been forged in the crucible of a home uh, growing up that was uh, one of neglect, one of trauma, and uh, just an extraordinarily domineering father who Donald Trump seems to have tried to build much of his life trying to, to please and ultimately to outdo. I guess some of this, I mean, when you use uh, words like narcissistic uh, that, that come from Mary Trump, I mean, these are things that have that have been uh, accusations that have been wielded at President Trump um, for several years now. Is is there a sort of a qualitative difference in in the this potential damage that this could cause President Trump because it comes from within the family? I think that's primarily the reason why, yes. I mean, it should be noticed that the author has a PhD in psychological studies, but more to the point, uh, she grew up around Donald Trump and and her father was his older brother. So this is really a look from inside the family. And what she shows is that she has a very keen eye for detail and has a way of kind of framing the family relationships and the individual members of the family as they're juxtaposed to each other, the most important characters being the father, Fred Trump Sr., his son, uh, Freddie, as he's known, who's the author's uh, father, and then the president. And I think that because you're seeing these behind-the-scenes moments of family dinners and Christmases, and you know, and it's not at a remove the way it is so much when we watch the president up there on the stage, it does resonate differently. Uh, of course, this is one person's opinion, and if there are other members of the family who have already said that they disagree with her take on this, but I do think it gives it a particular resonance because it comes from someone who grew up around this man. What pushback has there been from the White House? Well, we've seen them essentially denounce the book and also uh, denounce Mary Trump. They've actually, you know, the, the, the Trump organization has moved to quiet her and has, I think there's a gag order effectively in place right now that prevents her from speaking about the book. They see this as a betrayal of the president, but also her father, which she would, of course, strongly disagree with. She comes across with a lot of love and sympathy for her father in the book. And they've essentially said this is somebody who is lashing back out at the family because she wasn't given the inheritance that they think uh, that she thought that she deserved. She does write about the fact that she was given a much smaller inheritance than other members of the family. Uh, but I think she's fairly clear in what she says her motivations are, which are essentially to issue a warning to the public and to say, look, the man you see, I can explain to you where he came from and why he's like this. Yeah, and I just wonder, Shane, I mean, if, if that is her purpose, do you think it will move the dial? You know, I don't know that much moves the dial anymore, frankly, in American politics. I must say, it's a very vividly rendered portrait, and it isn't a family drama. That is, People aren't going to come away with a very different appreciation, I think, of Donald Trump. I mean, this is very much the man that we see. And so I think that given the state of polarized politics in America today, I doubt this will change anyone's minds. Shane Harris, intelligence and national security reporter for the Washington Post. I just wonder whether um, any of you, when these um, books are written, these memoirs are written and they're they're reported on and frequently serialised, whether um, you actually bother uh, ordering them yourselves. If you've got views on that, get in touch with us. Uh, at BBC News Hour is the programme's Twitter handle. At BBC Tim Franks is mine. <laughs> Now, it's uh, long been declared a pandemic, this terrible virus, but some regions we're not hearing from as frequently as others. Africa only accounts for a small proportion of total global cases, 
But in several countries, the acceleration of the rates of infection is causing intense concern that outbreaks could yet rage in a way we've seen in countries in Europe and the Americas and in places where the health systems may well be weaker. Dr. John Nkanga-Song is the director of Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which places are causing him particular concern. There are at least five countries that are causing us uh, uh, serious concerns. South Africa with about 200,000 cases, uh, Egypt with about 76,000 cases, Nigeria with close to 30,000 cases, uh, Ghana with 21,000 cases. So the pandemic is taking, picking uh, steam, momentum as we speak. We, have, uh, we are nearly about 500,000 of cases uh, on the continent, and that represents about 25% up from, from, from last week. That is so the, the pandemic is actually increasing and gaining momentum on the continent. And is that, I realise, lots of different places and probably lots of different reasons, but you mentioned South Africa. They did have a very hard lockdown early on. They then eased that. Are, are you seeing a correlation between the easing of restrictions and an increase in cases? As suspected, we will uh, naturally see an increased number of cases as you ease the, the lockdown. If South Africa hadn't locked down and implemented the aggressive measures, uh, my assumption and speculation would, is that they would have been at a very uh, different place now. That is, with respect to significant increased number of cases. So the lockdown really helped. Uh, a lot in, in, in slowing down the spread of the pandemic in, in South Africa. Um, it actually in, uh, decreased the daily uh, rates of new cases from about 30% to 5%. So the lockdown played a very, very important role. Now, the, the lockdown is uneasing. You expect an, a, a many more cases, and we are seeing that across uh, the, the board, not just in South Africa, but many other countries. Is one piece of good news or at least optimistic news that the death rate seems relatively low across the con- continent and if that is the case could that be down to the fact that that africa is is quite a young continent i, I, I believe so that is one uh, um, explanation i mean but we should really interpret that with, with caution that uh, our mortality surveillance uh, um, systems are not very strong. So the key, the key question, we look at that number and we, um, we say, good, I mean, this is uh, relatively low, but we should also be very cautious as we interpret that number. We might be missing a lot of community deaths because our surveillance our systems for mortality might be weak. So, again, we're only about five and a half months into this pandemic in Africa. The first cases were reported on the continent uh, around uh, February 14. So um, it's still uh, very early to make a, a prediction if the young population is, is um, a major contributor. But we look at the numbers. We uh, appreciate that our numbers are not as high as it is in other regions. But we are interpreting that with a lot of caution. Dr. Zhong Nkunga-Song, Director of Africa Center, uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, last time he was on the program, he was speaking to me from Addis. Um, this time he was speaking to me from Atlanta. You're listening to NewsHour. The border between Australia's two most populous states has been closed as the country fights an increase in coronavirus infections. The military and police are patrolling dozens of crossings along more than a thousand kilometres of frontier between Victoria 
and New South Wales. A six-week lockdown has been ordered in Victoria's capital city, Melbourne. Speaking at a news conference there, the State Premier of Victoria, Daniel Andrews, said that the number of infections had left the authorities with no choice. These are unsustainably high numbers of new cases. Uh, It is simply impossible with case rates at this level uh, to have enough contact tracing staff, to have enough uh, physical resources, no matter where they come from, no matter what uniform they wear, in order to continue to suppress and contain this virus without taking significant steps. If we were to fail to take those steps, then it won't be a couple of hundred cases per day. It will be many more than that, and it will quickly spiral well and truly out of control. He also said that testing residents in nine housing estate tower blocks in Melbourne who've uh, been in a hard lockdown since Sunday was a priority. Bridget Rodison from uh, ABC told NewsHour about restrictions now in force. All of Greater Melbourne is returning to stage three restrictions. So there's only four reasons why Victorians should leave their homes, and that's to go shopping for food and essential items, if they've got medical appointments or caregiving, to go to work or study if they can't do it for home, and also if they can go and exercise, they're allowed to do that, but they're just not allowed to leave their restricted postcodes. We did have 191 cases in Victoria today um, and that's the most we've ever recorded here since the pandemic began but only 69 of those are actually in those public housing towers and so they were in this hard lockdown. None of them in those buildings, more than 3,000 people were actually allowed to leave their homes at all. Um, It's taken a few days for them to get food. And a resident of uh, one of those tower blocks in Melbourne, Halia Alan, said that the uh, lockdown had come without prior warning by the authorities. I live in one of the high-rise towers that have been placed into lockdown, or hard lockdown, and the tower is a 20-storey building, and I live on the 12th floor. The way I came across this news was by coincidence, really. I was scrolling through Facebook, and I saw someone post something about um, the Premier explaining some important information. So I watched it, and it said that we were going to be locked down immediately. And I actually had a little bit of a hard time believing that. That was so extreme. I did not think that was going to be happening without any notice at all. So I went downstairs just to see what was going on, and there were swarms of police cars heading to the building. Some police officers were already at the doors, and so the entrance and exits and blocking off the staircase, so not letting anyone enter or leave. The only people they were letting enter back into the building were people who live here, and they were not going to be able to be let back out until this is all over. So that was really, really shocking. Julia Allen speaking to us uh, a little bit earlier. This is NewsHour, live from the BBC World Service in London with me, Tim Franks. There was a time when Israel was held up, along with just a handful of other countries, as a bit of an exemplar in how to deal with the epidemic. Lockdown hard, lockdown early, test and trace rigorously, that sort of thing. Now Israel appears an exemplar of things going wrong. There's been a sharp rise in new cases and the country's Director of Public Health has resigned, saying that her advice has been ignored. 
Professor Ellie Waxman of the Weizmann Institute is the chair of an expert team of scientists advising the Israeli government. He's been very critical of the Department of Public Health in Israel, saying that uh, it didn't help build enough capacity in terms of testing and tracing when the virus was under control. So, was it right for the Director of Public Health to quit? Yeah, I think that you are right that the public health uh, service uh, uh, did not uh, take the correct actions in order to build the capacity for uh, rapid uh, tracing and isolating of uh, infect, newly infected uh, people. And this uh, is one of the main reasons that we have lost control of the expansion of the epidemic. So in this sense, it is the correct move. However, it is not uh, a sufficient move. Uh, we need to move uh, forward and build this uh, capacity properly within the health ministry in order not to uh, lose control again once we reduce the numbers back to the level of a few tens per day. Right. I mean, she said in her resignation statement that she posted on Facebook, um, she, I, I'm not sure that she necessarily addressed your point in particular about the, the lack of capacity in testing and tracing. Uh, but she did say that, that the the big villain in all this was the easing of restrictions too quickly. Uh, how far do you think that that is a reasonable uh, accusation to level at the government? Well, I, I think that there are two main reasons for uh, the loss of control. One is indeed the too rapid pace of uh, relief of the restrictions. And the other, which is no less important, is the fact that we didn't build the test, stress, isolate uh, capability properly. So these are two uh, equally uh, valid uh, reasons, or the weights are quite uh, similar. So um, I think we need to press on both things uh, for the future. Right. I mean, you're part of a a team, um, an expert team, that has been advising the Israeli government. Um, Now with this director of public health having quit, I think the the senior official in the health ministry has has also gone. I, I just wonder what confidence you have that that type of capacity and grip can now, you know, suddenly suddenly magically appear? Uh, it will certainly not, not be a magic, uh, but I do believe that um, this, uh, the resignations are uh, a good uh, move because I believe that uh, the leaders of the health ministry uh, hold a significant part of responsibility for blocking the ability to build this uh, capability. Uh, I believe that the Infrastructure is uh, largely there because efforts have been uh, made. And I believe that uh, the crucial thing is proper management of this entire effort. And with the proper management, I think that we will be able to uh, operate uh, all the operative bodies that are uh, relevant, the testing facilities, the tracing, the isolation, uh, making them operate on a timely uh, manner in 48 hours from symptoms to the isolation of the first circles of uh, contact. And I believe that we uh, can build this capability within a few weeks. And the way in which you suggested doing that um, is by bringing in the army. Is that right? Um, The army had uh, established a control center within the health ministry during uh, the months of uh, March to uh, April. And... um, since we did not build uh, this capability within the, within the ministry over the past few months, uh, the fastest and probably the only reasonable way to uh, achieve this capability in a short time is to bring back 
this uh, control center run by the army. Uh, I think the army can do it uh, fairly quickly and then uh, transfer the uh, entire body that is being built to the direction of, to the directory of the health ministry. I, I realize you're a scientist and you're a, you know somebody who is is advising the government. So I understand that you may not want to sort of be drawn into this territory, but I do have to ask, I mean, you've, you've criticised um, some of the officials who've been involved in the response, but in terms of the politicians who are supposed to be leading this, I mean, is it reasonable to say that this is a government that is, I mean, it's huge, people say it's unwieldy, you've got a prime minister who's bound to be distracted by his... Uh, his legal problems, who um, has been talking about, you know, possibly a, a massive change to the to the map in the Middle East of talking about annexation. Uh, I mean, do, do you feel that, that the the politicians in charge have have had the the sort of the level of focus that you would want? Um, so I believe that. Uh... Well, definitely you are right that the uh, politicians also uh, carry a responsibility because it is not only the uh, public health service that is uh, responsible. Uh, uh, it is uh, being run by uh, a director general of the ministry and then there is a minister and a cabinet and so on. And they all, all are responsible. Uh, however, uh, most of the time that we have wasted from March till today, uh, was under the previous government. I believe that despite the difficulties uh, with the complications that you have mentioned, uh, the new government, and in particular the new health minister, is much more uh, active and much more aware of the situation. So I actually have higher hopes now than before. That was uh, Professor Eli Waxman, who's uh, advising the Israeli government on the pandemic. A quick update from the United States. In the last couple of hours, the Trump administration has officially notified the United Nations of the U.S. withdrawal from the WHO. Uh, Officials said that the U.N. Secretary General was informed that the U.S. would leave uh, the organization on Monday. President Trump's frequently criticized the World Health Organization, accusing it of covering up the coronavirus outbreak, failing to hold China to account. The U.S. decision comes at the... uh, well, uh, near the height of the pandemic so far, uh, cases in the US approaching 3 million. Who owns history? Who is it that dictates what we should and should not remember of our past? It's the question many institutions and councils in the United Kingdom are grappling with as the debate over statues and public monuments continues in the wake of global Black Lives Matter protests. In the city of Bristol, in the southwest of England, a new curriculum for school students will be introduced in September, giving children, it's right to believe, a more rounded history of the place they live in. It'll tackle in detail the city's close links with the Atlantic slave trade, links which many believe textbooks have, up to now, downplayed. Clive Murray is this report. St Nicholas Covered Market in the heart of Bristol sits in a Georgian arcade that encapsulates the city's merchant past and present. These days, the stalls sell souvenir mugs and T-shirts, but the rich plasterwork on the walls details other goods Bristol merchants once traded, including African slaves. And it's just up the road in the city centre, where the statue of Edward Colston, a prolific slave trader and local philanthropist, was toppled last month by a crowd anxious to topple his version of history. Lucy Wheeler runs a clothing stall in the market. I couldn't believe it. I was so happy. 
That statue was there to celebrate somebody who had links to the slave trade. It just always made me feel uncomfortable every time I saw it. I think it would be really nice if there could be a permanent museum to Bristol's part in the slave trade and put him in there in proper context. Bristol's part in that slave trade, we need to own it. We need to accept this is what happens and learn the real facts. Signs of the city's colonial past don't simply reside in St Nicholas Market. A bus ride could take you to Jamaica Street. The glorious Georgian terraces that lazily stretch around the Clifton area, they date from the days when slavery swelled merchant coffers. And it's the descendants of the merchants and past city elders who used to own the history of the city. They decided the atrocity of slavery was best forgotten. But a new generation doesn't want to forget. Asher Craig is the deputy mayor of Bristol and the descendant of Jamaican immigrants. Here in Bristol, it has been really important to us that we needed to look at legacy. If we look at legacy, it can't be through one particular kaleidoscope. The kaleidoscope has many colours, history has many stories. Why is that important? Why is it important? Because we need to know our history. We need to eliminate racism. And the only way you're going to do that is to educate, educate. Education is key. Is that part of the legacy of colonialism then? Ignorance? Of course it is. My daughter said, Mum... My white friends were just as ignorant as I was because it is what we were taught in schools. So, two different versions. From a black perspective, we were slaves. From the white people's point of view, they were the victors. You know, we conquered commonwealth, empire, all of that. A new citywide school curriculum means when it comes to slavery, primary and secondary pupils will now get a comprehensive history. Pupils are also to get a better understanding of the post-war black British experience too. The sacrifices made by the Windrush generation. In 1954, about 10,000 West Indians came to Britain. In 1955, it is believed another 15,000 will make the long journey. The newsreels show well-dressed black men and women descending the gangplanks of ships newly arrived in the UK from the Caribbean. Whatever our feelings, we cannot deny them entry. For all our British citizens, and as such, are entitled to the identical rights of any member of the Empire. For some, that turned out to be a lie. Mike Lord was sixth when he disembarked from a Barbados ship in 1960. He arrived on his godmother's passport, and years later had no other paperwork to prove he had the right to live here. I felt like a leper. You know, I just well had a tag on my back saying I'm not British because no one will accept it because the government made it not to employ you if you've got no paperwork to prove who you are. And it's been hard. It's been really hard. That make you angry? Not angry. I just can't understand why all this is going on. Did it feel as if they were just wiping away that history that you had from the age of six? Trying to. Trying to brush it onto the carpet, basically. They want to forget. Mike's story is a crucial thread in Bristol's story, and the pain of the Windrush generation won't be forgotten. Not far away from the docks here, the statue of Edward Colston has been fished from the River Avon, where the protesters had dumped it. Restorers are working to preserve the graffiti sprayed on it in Dayglow Red. At some point, he'll be placed back on his plinth, probably in a museum, with a plaque outlining not just his philanthropy, but also his slave trading. 
A reminder that ultimately history and memory belongs to us all, not just the victors. Clive Myrie reporting from Bristol over the next few weeks. We'll uh, hear from other countries which uh, help tell the story of the legacy of British colonial rule. You're listening to News Hour. And a reminder of our top story this hour, the Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has announced he's tested positive for coronavirus. He's often downplayed the threat posed by a disease which has so far killed more than 60,000 of his compatriots. Gilles Denis is a member of the state parliament in Sao Paulo with President Bolsonaro's party, and he's been speaking to us. The president does take the necessary measures. You don't always get that impression when you listen to his critics and the big media who say that he isn't uh, taking enough care, that he's not wearing a mask. But I think he has this closer, more personal connection with the people. And the reality is that the big majority of people in Brazil at some point will catch the virus. So this is maybe just inevitable. This is News Hour from the BBC. With no communal singing at church services in the UK allowed because of uh, the coronavirus and restrictions in countries like Germany and the Netherlands, how are choirs going to manage to keep things going? Our arts correspondent David Silito decided to take a closer listen. He went to the English Cathedral City of Wells. I just love the sound we make when we're together. Welcome to Bebbington's Creative Community Choir. They were allowing me to sit in on rehearsals, which are of course now taking place on Zoom. It isn't the same as being in the room together, obviously. What I miss is actually meeting up with people, being able to share things. When you're singing on your own, you do feel very isolated. Zoom is not really a good choral solution. So what's the route map to restore singing? It was this thought that took me to meet the choral community of Wells Cathedral. A few housemates have been singing in gardens, but other than that, there's been silence. It breaks my heart, to be honest. I'm Emily Risden and I sing in the Scola Cantorum, which is the ladies' choir at the cathedral. Do you miss the singing? Yeah, absolutely. I think it provides an emotional release and to know that that's dangerous and that could actually hurt people it's just heartbreaking I feel like there's been a lot of research put into working out how pubs and cafes and restaurants can be safe for people and yet the arts just don't seem to be receiving the same treatment Discussions about restoring singing have been taking place amongst the proposals being discussed three metre gaps between singers and restricting the number of singers to six. That's three. I need to walk towards. So what would a socially distanced choir sound like? So this is the last one, three metres again. To be extra safe, we did it outside the cathedral and I stood well back. sounded 
beautiful to me. But the singers... Three metres apart. Did it work for you? Well... That's a no, isn't it? I'm going to say it's going to be very difficult. You are spending too much time trying to listen out for everyone else. And so three metres really wouldn't work for you? I don't think so. Should it be one metre, two metre, three metres, four metres? Should there be a limit on how many singers there are? It's all down to what's coming out of the mouths other than the music. And the science behind that is a bit sketchy. There are a number of research studies that have been done around the world, but it's very difficult to do research in this area because the quantities of aerosol and droplets that you're talking about are really very small and very difficult to measure and require very specialist kit. Which is why Declan Costello, a consultant who specialises in treating the singing voice, has been encouraging some real science. Singing has been singled out as being a dangerous, quote-unquote, thing to do, really without any evidence or research to back that up. And back in Wells with our impromptu performance, it was a reminder of just how silent these months have been. The hope is the go-ahead will be given soon for the research to begin, which it's hoped will open up a pathway to once again allow us to sing together. A lovely sound from uh, the City of Wells in England. That was David Silito reporting. There have been lots of stories during this pandemic about distillers and brewers producing neat alcohol for hand sanitising, but one distillery in the US state of Pennsylvania has claims to an unusual, if not unique, backstory. First, that its operation was entirely not-for-profit, and that its head distiller's grandmother used her home-distilled whisky as a disinfectant during the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. That head distiller is Michael Woody Dombrowski, and his story stretches back to when his great-grandparents first arrived in the US from Poland. A lot of the women were midwives or nurses, and it started with my great-grandmother. She was a midwife in the coal regions in Pennsylvania where she would make opium-based whiskey, and that was basically like a snake oil. It was a cure-all. It would cure kidney disease or arthritis. Um, and she would drink a lot of that. In fact, uh, she would drink so much of that, she would fall off the doctor's cart when she would be coming home treating patients. Now, my grandmother learned from her how to make it. And my grandmother distilled her rye whiskey at a very young age. And she actually financed herself going to nursing school here in Allentown. Tell me also, though, what she used it for during the, the Spanish flu pandemic. During the, the Spanish flu, it was, uh, again, it was an antiseptic to her. Being in a medical field, the alcohol, the high-proof alcohol, was used to kill germs and bacteria. She would soak uh, her gauze mask in the rye whiskey and then put it on and then go into the hospital and treat those patients who were suffering from the Spanish influenza. Amazing. I mean, and it obviously worked for her because she survived. She did survive. She passed away in 1981, somewhere around 83 years old. And she was still a tough old bird, as everybody called her over here. <laughs> in, a, in a complimentary fashion. Um, yes, yes. Did you sort of think of her when your mind did turn to turning your operations into just distilling pure alcohol for hand sanitizer? Daily. I, I was, you know, thinking she was up there looking down on us doing it you know, saying how proud she is that, you know, she, we actually learned from her some of the ways, the old ways, and we continue to use some of the old ways and the old medicine 
Another thing uh, she would do with people who had ear infections, specifically my aunt, she had a major ear infection as a young girl in the 19, late 1930s, where my grandmother boiled rabbit fat and poured it into her ear to actually help her regain her hearing and actually, you know, prevent her from losing her hearing. Gosh, well, I look forward to you writing that up in the American <laughs> Journal of Medicine. Um, just in terms of, I know that you've now gone back to your day job of distilling stuff that people can actually drink. But just in terms of how the last few months have been, I know that you uniquely, but certainly very unusually, when when you and your colleagues did distill alcohol for hand sanitizer, you did it as a not-for-profit operation for the local hospital that um, is correct. Clearly, you wanted to do the right thing. But were you concerned at all that actually, you know, you were taking a huge financial hit from from this? Uh, I, it, it all it comes around circle. I mean, we might have been taking a financial hit, but it's better to help the community. If there's no community out there to buy your product, what's the sense of continuing on with the product? And if you help the community and they get better, sooner or later, it's going to come around and they're going to help you and you'll get better. Woody Dombrowski, speaking to me from uh, Pennsylvania. That's it from this edition of News Hour from me, Tim Franks, and the rest of the team here in London. Thank you very much for your company. News Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts. The Comb is a brand new podcast that brings you surprising, fascinating and intelligent stories from across the continent of Africa. It's made by the BBC World Service and would love you to come and check us out. Search for The Comb wherever you got this podcast.